Just two days after a rally was held in Taipei in support of Black Lives Matter, a very popular group of YouTubers here in Taiwan uploaded a video of themselves in blackface. It's clear that now, more than ever, we need to do a better job of listening to black people. And that's what we're going to do in today's show. I'm Natalie So. And I'm Andrew Ryan. Let's check out the stories on our radar. It's now been more than two months since Taiwan recorded its last domestically transmitted case of COVID-19. But Taiwan isn't letting down its guard. That's because cases continue to trickle in from abroad. Two of the most recent cases have caused a particular stir. That's because the patients told authorities that they'd worn protective gear on their flight back to Taiwan, a claim that turned out to be a lie. The two are now facing fines for endangering others. Taiwan just appointed its first female representative to the U.S. Xiaobi Kim is a National Security Council official and former DPP lawmaker. She is a foreign policy expert who is well-connected in Washington. Her upbringing also bridges Taiwan and America. She was born to a Taiwanese father and American mother. After studying in Taiwan, she went to high school in the U.S. and received a bachelor's degree from Oberlin College and a master's in political science from Columbia University. After more than two decades, Taiwan may soon be able to export pork to the world again. That's after the World Organization for Animal Health declared Taiwan free of foot-and-mouth disease. Taiwan's pork industry has suffered since a 1997 outbreak of the disease shut it out of foreign markets. While that disease is now out of the way, though, the path isn't totally open. Taiwan will first have to tackle another pig disease, classical swine fever, as a final hurdle to getting its pork into markets like the U.S. and Japan. Don't let COVID-19 put a damper on your summer travel plans, if you're currently in Taiwan anyway. That's the message of a new domestic tourism campaign spearheaded by New Taipei, Taidong, and the outlying Mazu Islands. Overseas travel may be off the table, but, well, just look at this footage. There are a lot of ways to enjoy all that Taiwan has to offer. And under the radar this week, it's a baby leopard cat. The baby was found alone by a Miaoli County local and put in the care of a nearby police officer who has experience rescuing these little guys. A cat presumed to be the mother has been spotted, and the hope is that the baby can be reunited with her soon. And now it's time for our words of the week. Andrew, ready to guess? Yes, let's see what you have. Vomit no. voices. <laughs> That's right. Yes. yes, so today we're going to listen to the voices of the two organizers of the Black Lives Matter rally in Taipei. They're going to tell us what it's like to be black in Taiwan and in the U.S. Great word. You ready for mine? Yes. All right. Listen. <laughs> I was thinking that word too. <laughs> Clearly, uh, we have uh, some uh, common ideas Same about this. Today. Yeah. So I was actually at that solidarity rally in support of Black Lives Matter, and a lot of times our instant reaction as journalists is to speak out to explain things. Uh, but for me, I think it's even more important for us to listen to the people who are affected. That's great. We're going to be doing that today. Let's put these on the show. The Mazu pilgrimage is finally underway after being canceled due to the COVID-19 outbreak. The procession of the Goddess of the Sea is one of the top three religious festivals in the world. 
Usually about one million people take part in Mazu's birthday celebration and journey, visiting about 100 temples over 300 kilometers. It features free food, ceremonies, and fireworks. One thing you'll often see is people prostrating under her sedan chair to obtain her blessings. But that and many other aspects of the pilgrimage have changed this year due to the pandemic. Let's have a look. The Mazu pilgrimage is a nine-day, eight-night religious procession that takes place every year. An idol of the sea goddess Mazu is transported on a palanquin from Zhenlan Temple in central Taiwan to Fengtian Temple in the south and back again. This year, organizers delayed and then streamlined the pilgrimage in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. One of the silver linings to the downsized festival is that Mazu is getting where she needs to go much faster. The procession arrived at its first stop three hours ahead of schedule. This tunnel, which is usually packed to the gills, took just three minutes to traverse. During the pilgrimage, people prostrate in front of Mazu's palanquin, receiving her blessings as she passes overhead. Organizers had prohibited that this year, but then they eased the rules to allow people to crawl under it during breaks. A few devout worshippers decided that wasn't enough. They made a break for it, diving under the palanquin before they could be stopped. Despite the organizers' best efforts, prevention practices have slipped. Food is left uncovered and out in the open, while people crowd inside the Zhanghua County Government Building to rest. Fear of COVID-19 has seemingly been outmatched by local faith. Last Saturday, there were at least four different rallies in Taipei. The biggest one was to mark the first anniversary of Hong Kong protests. But perhaps the most diverse one was a solidarity rally in support of Black Lives Matter. Now, recently, I caught up with two of the organizers, Toy Windham and Stephanie Davis, to find out why it was so important for them to hold a rally here in Taipei, so far from home. The issues are not related to Taiwan. It's related to being back in America but it's important for us to be able to physically do something. And this was one of the ways of doing so. And as we did this rally, it also allowed us to fundraise, to send money back to organizations that could be able to help stop injustices and police brutality. Standing on stage, what was the the instant feeling that you had? (laughs) I Honestly, the first thought that went through my mind was, holy moly. Wow. We did it. <laughs> this is real. This is happening. This, the mm-hmm. people are here and they're ready to listen. Mm-hmm. And it was just a breath of fresh air. All the hard work was valid. We did it for a reason. Mm-hmm. And it just was really breathtaking, honestly. It really was. The energy at the park, it was just overwhelming. It was. Um, invigorating because we were able to see so many people from so many different communities around Taiwan come and support this movement. Um, I know I had some friends from Taichung come all the way up and from Kaohsiung and all over Taipei. Local people and foreigners alike all showed up, showed their support and showed their love. So it was really encouraging because we've, we've been overwhelmed by so many negative um, negative things in the news, in the media. and. And it was really nice to have a, a, positive, a positive image, a positive 
just love from everyone. What are some of the things that happened during the rally that you will take with you? What are yeah. some of the moments? Can you maybe tell us what you're, sure. the thing you'll be thinking about this week, Stephanie? Um, the main thing that I've been thinking about the most has really been the eight minutes and 46 seconds mm -hmm. of silence um, that we did for George Floyd. Um, one of the things that I was able to talk with my students about, and, and this is why it's important to me, was because I was able to explain to them why that was important and why his death means so much to me, because it could have been me. Mm -hmm. And for someone to deliberately do that to another human um, says a lot. Um, it was just really overwhelming standing there um, with all the other organizers and just feeling that and just feeling the amount of time that it took and not not one not at any point during that did that particular police officer or any of the other ones do anything to stop it i was also curious to know how the experience of being black is different in the u.s and in taiwan being black in america um there are systems in the government and the police force that are in place that directly threatens our lives. Um, there are ways that we have been discriminated against in terms of jobs, education, and housing, so forth and so on, yeah. that have been perpetuated and continue to be enforced even today. Things like old systems that have been created by generations ago. And so those directly affect us, but here, our lives are not, um, at, like our actual life is not going to be at, at, at risk. In danger, yeah. Yeah, it's not going to be yeah. endangered. Um, but there are things that we still encounter on a daily basis where people may look at us a, a certain way or may discriminate us on a lower level, um, such as microaggressions or people touching my hair or um, sometimes how they may point at us. Um, mm -hmm. Point at your skin. Yeah. yeah, and so it's like little things that really bother us, but it's not going to always, um, it's not a, a direct threat. Yeah. Does it feel different? I mean, when people do things like, for example, try to touch your hair, does it feel different in Taiwan than it does in America? Yeah, it's, it is a little bit different, right? It's, think about it in the sense of instead of stabbing you with a large knife or cutting off your arm, Instead, what happens is they just poke at you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the first poke is kind of like, ha, 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 I am ticklish. It's okay. But then after a while and you're just sitting there living your normal life, those pokes get annoying. Yes. <laughs> and it, it becomes a really, really big bother. And at mm -hmm. one point in time, sometimes you're just like, just... Just I cut, don't want to deal with just it. cut me with something <laughs> deeper yeah. so that we can address so we can it. Deal with it right? Yeah. right. So we can address yeah. it, go to yeah. the hospital and I get surgery. But these pokes, please stop. Being here in Taiwan, a lot of things that some people may do, it's out of curiosity, yeah. which like Stephanie says, sometimes we're the only black person that some people may ever encounter or the first one that they encounter. And so they may ask questions, which I, I, I will happily answer yeah. questions yeah. about anything in terms of me being a black person or just a foreigner here in Taiwan. Mm. Um, and then other things that happen are out of ignorance. So yeah. we have to educate people, locals and foreigners too, to show them like, hey, these things are not okay. Um, and mm. hopefully they, everyone is receptive. Mm. So. 
Toy and Stephanie say that the rally was just the beginning of the conversation here in Taiwan. If you'd like to learn more, we'll have the links in the show notes below. We'll also have a link to the full interview, including their comments on blackface, Colin Kaepernick, and why it was so important to have Taiwan's indigenous people at the rally. This week on Hashtag Taiwan, I want to talk to you. Well, I want to talk to you about Taiwan. Let's start off with a quick history lesson. Officially, the country of Taiwan is not known as Taiwan. It's actually the Republic of China. Why? This goes back to the Chinese Civil War where both Mao Zedong and Chiang Kai-shek fought for sovereignty over China. Mao's forces pushed Chiang Kai-shek to the island of Taiwan. Both sides claim to represent China, which is exactly why you have the Republic of China and the People's Republic of China. That's the very abridged version of that chapter in Chinese history. If you're interested, I urge you to read more. For example, on Wikipedia, where Taiwan's status recently changed from a state to a country. Some have suggested doing away with the name the Republic of China and calling the nation by the name Taiwan. They want the country to forfeit its claim over China and just focus on the sweet potato-shaped island. RTI published a news article this week about how civic groups are calling on lawmakers to emphasize Taiwan on passports and airline names. Back in April, there was an entire movement to change the name of the national air carrier China Airlines to Taiwan Airlines. During the pandemic, Taiwan has donated medical supplies to countries around the world, and people get confused when shipments arrive on planes labeled China. Now, some people have gone so far as to Photoshop what a Taiwan Airlines jet might look like. There was even a crude template of a Taiwan jet circulating online that people could use to color and design their own jet planes with. Transportation Minister Ling Jialong posted these three concepts that use the template. My personal favorite is the bubble tea jet that can fire tapioca balls at a rate which I can only assume is 300 units of deliciousness per minute. This is what a Taiwanese passport looks like. Many people are unhappy with the fact that the Republic of China is emphasized over Taiwan. In fact, people have gotten in trouble in the past for putting stickers on their passports to cover the parts that say Republic of China. One local artist reimagined the Taiwanese passport by overhauling it with a design inspired by, what else, bubble tea. Diplomacy is one area where there is very little wiggle room for your country's name. Your official designation is your official designation. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Taiwan refers to the country officially as the Republic of China, Taiwan. Taiwan is in parentheses afterwards as kind of a way to say this China, not that China. Now, as a Taiwanese person myself, I can understand this all seems a little too confusing. The diplomatic and historical intricacies of Taiwan as a country are very complex, to say the least. Even I don't have a full grasp on it yet. Today in Three Picks, I'm going to take you all to the Fulong Sand Sculpture Festival. It happens every year. It's the 13th year in the row. Wow. And did you know that Fulong Beach has three kilometers of golden sand? It's the best place in the world. No, not in Taiwan. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in the world right now because, you know, we're free from the pandemic. So right, right, right. To make sand sculptures and sand castles. So we're mm -hmm. going to see some of those today. Now, the one that has been getting the most attention this year features our beloved health minister, Chen Shizong. Okay, you see his image fighting Whoa. the coronavirus. Really? <laughs> now, my Very question intrigued. for you guys is, what did he say when he saw his image sculpted in sand? Oh my goodness, that's a great <laughs> question. Um, what did he say? What would he say? He's, he he's would very, say he's a very self-effacing man, I think. Yeah, he's a very clever guy, very stoic, almost calm. I'm gonna say he said, Hopefully, the waves won't wash me away. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. 
I, w- I think he would say, do I really look like that? <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's take a look first at the sculpture. Oh, wow. And he said it was very well done, but if they made me look a little younger, it would be even better. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> that does sound like nice? something he'd so say. So you see him in the middle, and then, um, you know, the, the coronavirus is around him. So those fighting. balls that are surrounding him, those are they, coronavirus. Yeah. And he's in a boat? No, he was holding Let's up a flag. Let's take a look at the picture. Let's see the picture again. Okay. Oh, the, so he's got the a viruses flag. that got faces too. They do. Yeah, they got little those eyes. Those are fa- coronavirus, and there's other people working with him, of course. So, you know, it's it's an honor of um, all the people who have been fighting coronavirus in Taiwan. Wonderful job, whoever did that. That's a okay. great I see one. the likeness. Yeah. Yeah, it looks like him. A little it's a older. Really than good job. Yeah, it was a little older than me. <laughs> <laughs> he's more handsome than that. <laughs> Okay, the second um, sculpture I want to introduce is one I thought was really cute. It has two of our indigenous animals surfing. And actually, the theme revolves around tourism. Also, um, the, it's, it's the uh, giant in Wonderland. So that's the theme of this year. Mm-hmm. But what are those two animals featured surfing in a sand sculpture? One's got to be the, uh, the Formosan black bear. You're right. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah it's for got to sure. be the Formosan black bear. I'm going to say the pangolin. Pangolin. Okay, let's take a look. A leopard cat, leopard cat. on the top and then a Mosin black bear on the bottom. He's got sunglasses. That's Isn't super that so cute? cute? He's got sunglasses. That's I love very it. cute. He's so cute. Nicely done waves. Yeah. Wow. I still want to see a pangolin on a surfboard, though. There yeah. are more we animals. <laughs> there are more animals featured in oh, different sculptures. Nice. Okay, now the last picture. We're going to take a look at the winning... Um, sculpture from last year. This is actually an international competition, mm-hmm. and um, it's you know they have first prize winners. This is the top prize from last year. Let's take a look at the picture, and the theme of last year was Ooh. "In Search of Lost Atlantis." Wow! And what do you think the theme or the name of this particular work was? Okay, so to describe it for our radio listeners, on the left side of his face looks kind of like a pixelated version of Atlantis. On and the right side, there's a woman on the bottom too. A, a woman on the bottom, and then on the right hand side, it looks like it's a um, very lifelike portrayal of it. Yeah, it looks like, like Jason Momoa in Aquaman. It does look it Jason. Does Momoa. so. Um, the the pic- we're looking for the name of it. Yeah. <laughs> It's really hard. Aquaman and sand. Yeah, I'm, call, I'm calling it Jason Momoa and Aquaman. I like it. I like it. I think that's that's kind of be. It's, it's not be a right. bad name. No. It's actually Nirvana. Oh, Nirvana. Oh, yeah, that that so. would have been like 150 on my list. Well, see if we could smell it and it smelled like Teen Spirit, then I would have gotten it. There we go. Yeah, I, I got that one. I got that reference. So, what'd you guys think of the works? Very nice. I, I mean, thought the first one was really impressive with the flag. So, very it was powerful. so like him, right? I'm surprised that one didn't win. So, no, that was from last year. Oh, last year. Okay. Yeah. So, we're that. still waiting for the contest <laughs> to be over this year. But, anyways, there are 32 works at the International Sand Sculpture Art Festival in Fulong. It runs all the way through September. And that's something that um, all of us can enjoy this summer. You guys should check it out. Will do. Thanks so much for joining us this week for this inside look at Taiwan. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Yes, leave a comment below. We would love to hear from you. For Taiwan Insider, I'm Natalie So. I'm Leslie Liao. And I'm Andrew Ryan. We'll see you next week.
You're listening to Radio Taiwan International. Write us at PO Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan, ROC. ROC. This is Radio Taiwan International. Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Hello and welcome to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. The people of Kaohsiung recently recalled opposition Kuomintang Mayor Han Guoyu. The party behind mobilizing support for the recall throughout Kaohsiung was actually a small party called the Taiwan State Building Party. Today we hear from Fulbright scholar Lev Nachman, who is in Taiwan studying its small political parties. He gives us insight into the Kaohsiung recall and also the role small parties are playing in Taiwan politics. He first tells us if most of Taiwan's small parties are pro-Taiwan independence. So there's a bit of a, uh, a difference with there, there. There is variation within these smaller parties. Mm-hmm. So you, parties like the Taiwan State Building Party and the New Power Party will directly say we are a we are pro Taiwan independence. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Taiwan People's Party is much more ambiguous about their specific stance. Uh, Ko Wenzhi himself, uh, his entire appeal that he tried to market himself as is a middle ground politician. So uh, trying to pretend that the independence unification issue isn't as important as it really is um, in order to try to say that we're above this this Liang An Guanxi problem. Uh, and then, of course, later on, we now know that their official stance is a fairly pro-status quo stance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so officially, the TPP stance on independence is uh, Taiwan is already independent as the ROC, which is fairly status quo. Mm-hmm. Uh so, you know, they're not all the exact same, uh, but by no means are any of the smaller parties pro-China mm, is the big, right. or at least ex- directly pro-China. So it, it is interesting because um, Mayor Han was seen as a very pro-China candidate. So do you think that this is also the people um, saying no to China? It, it is to a degree. It, it really is to a degree. Um, and actually, the representative from the Taiwan State Building Party at the... Uh, victory presser that they held outside the WeCare uh, headquarters said directly, this is not just us saying no to Han Guoyu, this is us saying no to Xi Jinping. Uh, you know, Han Guoyu became a bit of a manifestation of what uh, kind of PRC influence in Taiwan looks like mm-hmm. because he was just very directly willing to endorse a lot of very pro-PRC positions, not just things like the 92 consensus, but trade with China as well. So, um, I mean, it's obvious that, you know, with the election of President Tsai Ing-wen, now we see uh, Han Guoyu being um, defeated in this recall election. Do you think that the overall sentiment in Taiwan is more um, against China? Uh, I think you can look at recent data from the Pew, uh, Pew Research uh, Survey just put out a new report about uh, Taiwan sentiment towards the U.S. and Taiwan sentiment towards China. And unsurprisingly, people have much more positive views of the U.S. than they do of China. But there is still a f- far larger number of green voters, DPP voters, that have favorable economic uh, perceptions of China, meaning they're willing to work with China for uh, economic goals, but have very negative political uh, 
understandings of, of China. Mm. Um, and uh, I think, you know, it, 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 there's, a, there's a wide uh, perception from kind of outside of Taiwan that everyone in Taiwan has, that has very, very strong anti-China uh, bias. But I think if you look at the data, it's not simply an anti-China thing. You really have to sparse out what anti-China means. Mm-hmm. Uh, because politically speaking, no one wants the PRC to, to hurt any of Taiwan's democratic institutions. But that doesn't mean everyone is completely against any sort of relationship with China. In fact, the survey shows that even green voters themselves are favorable to a fair economic relationship with China. Right. And getting back to Han Gui, I mean, he did win Kaohsiung um, with a majority, about mm-hmm. 54% or so. And he wanted to increase trade and exports you know, to China and other places. So um, why do you think he was so popular and able to win Kaohsiung at that time? Uh, Kaohsiung had been run by the DPP for a very long time, uh, and uh, Han Guoyu really capitalized off of a very specific sentiment of dissatisfaction with the ruling party. Uh, a You're lot of about his, the DPP, about then, the right? DPP. Mm-hmm. A lot of his rhetoric was the DPP has forgotten Kaohsiung. They've forgotten the common people. I will remember the common people. I am the common people. Uh, I will. I will make sure that uh, Kaohsiung can become known again as a great trading hub of Taiwan. Uh, And for people in Kaohsiung back in uh, 2018 was when he was elected as mayor, they bought that. And of course, you know, there was a lot of other complicated stuff happenings with with online campaigns for Han Guoyu and uh, a lot of just very massive um, kind of populist rhetoric that really mobilized support for him out of almost seemingly nowhere. But it didn't last. So um, you think people were very disappointed that he didn't do much for Kaohsiung? What was it that made people turn so quickly against him? I I, I really think it was uh, buyer's remorse, where (laughs) uh, everyone voted for, or everyone kind of bought into this idea that this was really going to be amazing, uh, and it really wasn't. At the same time, uh, it would not surprise me if a lot of people who turned out to vote uh, to recall Han Goyu did not vote in the mayoral election that he won in. So we know from, uh, from uh, polling data that voter turnout during midterm elections is lower than presidential elections, mm-hmm. which means that people will not turn out to vote for their mayors as much as they will turn out to vote for their presidents. So there's also a very good chance that people who thought that the DPP would simply win in Kaohsiung because the DPP always wins in Kaohsiung only to find Han winning probably were extra motivated to turn out to recall him this time as well. I think when we look at the number of people who voted against Hanguyu, it's a bigger number than the people that voted for Hanguyu during his election. I think that kind of might uh, capture some of that population as well. Mm, I see. Well, can you explain his rise, though? Because he was, and he still is popular among some people, you know, the Han fans. Absolutely. So can you explain his charm and his popularity? You know, this is something that I worry uh, gets uh, downplayed a little bit too much. In 2020, in January, five and a half million people voted for Han Guoyu for president. Right, that's a lot of people. That's two million more people than uh, Zhu Liluan got in 2016. That's Zhu, a lot more Zhu people. Zhu Liluan got three and a half million. Uh, and we know from some other political science research that people who identify with the party tend to vote for that party regardless of who the candidate is. But at the same time, Han had a lot of genuine fans. And they're not simply going to just disappear because the election ended. 
Uh, obviously, Tsaing Wen won with uh, eight plus million votes. Clear victory. Clearly, the Taiwanese voting population wants Tsai, not Han. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't a very sizable population of the Taiwanese public that genuinely Support him. supports him. Yeah, and they're they're. I mean, his hand. Fans are famous, right? There's hand wave yes. and hand fans, and they're pretty uh, enthusiastic. And so, so, so the next question is, what is going to happen to Hang Yu now? Um, there's rumors that he might run for party chair. There's rumors that he might try to run for mayor somewhere else. Um, and you know, there's a real chance that he's not going to go anywhere anymore. Uh, a lot. Of, I mean, the, the KMT factions, you know, the factions that really put their money on Hang Yu lost. Um, and whether or not they will be able to kind of consolidate their position and try to continue to use Han, that's something to look for in the future. Mm. So do you think he still has um, a certain appeal among a certain population of KMT supporters? Uh, I think he did. The big question is, what does the average voter look like after COVID? Because a lot of people who before would never say something nice about sighing one suddenly yeah. have a lot of nice things to say about Tsai Right. Uh, good governance does a lot for a politician's reputation. Uh, and a lot of moderate to light blue voters who might not enthusiastically support Tsai when before might be a little bit more inclined uh, to vote for someone like her in the future. Now, whether or not that's going to translate into voting for the DBP in the future, we'll see. Unfortunately, the next election is still two years away. And, you know, in Taiwanese politics times, that's a lifetime. <laughs> So who knows what's <laughs> going to possibly happen between now and then. But uh, I, I think uh, there, there is definitely, at this very moment now, a bit of a shift into public support for DPP versus KMT. Uh, COVID has been uh, an amazing boost of support for Tsai and the DPP. Well, she's done a great job, right? Yes, deservedly so. I mean, one of the best in the world, basically. Yes. And, um, and so uh, Gaoshong, what do you think is going to happen to Gaoshong? Great question. So the, ne- the next thing to, to keep our eyes on is the by-election. So now that Han is out and he's said that he's not going to contest the results, uh, there needs to be a new mayoral election. Uh, and everyone might obviously think that the DPP is going to send whoever there and they'll win very quickly. But I don't think it's necessarily going to be so simple. Um, there's a lot of rumors that it'll be Chen Chi Mai, the former DPP candidate who lost to Hang Guoyu. Um, but the KMT is probably also going to still nominate someone. More interestingly, are smaller third parties. So because the Taiwan State Building Party was so present for the recall vote, they are very popular in Kaohsiung right now. Uh, they're from Kaohsiung originally. Uh, and if there was ever a moment for them to try to capitalize on some of their momentum, it could be an opportunity for them to try to nominate someone for mayor themselves. At the same time, you have parties like the New Power Party and the Taiwan People's Party, who, even though they're not as popular in Kaohsiung and they might not nominate someone themselves, uh, the DPP and the KMT will most certainly want their endorsement for whoever candidate they nominate because they still do have a voice with younger voters. Mm. Uh, So the next mayoral election in Kaohsiung may actually become very interesting. And when you were in Kaohsiung, what was the mood there? Very happy. Very happy. Uh, it was, it was, I mean, it, it was very moving. I mean, considering in today's world, so many democracies seem so dysfunctional uh, that Kaohsiung, Taiwan, of all places, to be the one place where people turn up to vote and uh, proper democratic transition happens, that's not contested. Um, I hope Taiwan can be a new trendsetter. 
All right. Well, Lev, I think it's great having you in Taiwan, kind of watching and observing Taiwan politics and writing about it to the world. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And I've been speaking with Lev Nachman. He's a Fulbright scholar studying Taiwan politics in Taiwan. We've been talking about the recall of Kaohsiung Mayor Han Guoyu. Next up, our weekly news quiz. <laughs> The Sound of the Puyuma Tribe on Radio Taiwan International. Welcome to this week's news quiz, where I'll be pitting Natalie and Andrew against their knowledge of this week's news. <laughs> Are you guys? Have you guys been paying attention? So kind of. I got a lot of questions for you today, oh, so awesome. let's okay. go. Sixty seconds on the clock, please, guys. Number one: What disputed territory caused a stir when Japan tried to change its official Gao designation? Correct. Well, who is slated to run for Kaohsiung mayor for the DPP in the by-election? Sun Mai. Very good. According to media reports, who, who is speculated to be running for Kaohsiung mayor for the KMT? Ooh. I don't know. I don't know either. Legislator at large Wu Yiting, parts of Taiwan will be able to see a full solar eclipse on Sunday. Now, how many years later will Taiwan see another similar solar eclipse after that one? Seventy. One hundred and ninety-five. Oh my gosh! A Pingdong County hospital official went missing for how many days before being found? Seven. Ten. Oof. Two guides found him. How much were they each promised in reward money by the county government? One million. One million each. Very good. Earlier this week, plane watchers in Taichung saw what fly for the very first time? Plane watchers. Uh, a stealth jet? Uh, the indigenous jet trainer, Brave Eagle. Oh. Now, last question. The head of state of which Taiwanese ally tested positive for COVID-19? Honduras. Very good. Yeah. All right. How many, were you guys keeping right. track of score? Uh, uh, I we got two or three Neither wrong. Was, uh, About you guys maybe four or five right. Two wrong. You guys win it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, this is the news time. quiz where... Uh, Points don't matter, and the news is current. And that's this week's <laughs> Taiwan News Quiz. Thanks for joining me for Taiwan Today. I am Natalie So, and I'll see you next week. John Van Trieste and the destination the 1980s in mid-July 30 years ago a new era in Taiwan's history began a movement for democracy won out and decades of martial law came to an end autocracy and single-party rule were done away with 
and in their place came a flowering of openness and civil rights. It was a big transformation, but not one that happened abruptly. Last week, we heard from Professor Chen Fangming, University Chair Professor at National Zhengzhou University's Graduate Institute of Taiwanese Literature. He told us about the rise of Taiwan's democracy movement in the 1970s and about its supporters' early struggles. Today, he joins us again to take us through the rest of the story, through the 1980s and all the way to the milestone year of 2000. Professor Chen told us last week about how economic growth in the 1970s had created a democratically-minded middle class. He says this economic growth continued to expand into the 1980s with the foundation of the Xinju Science Park. Taiwan's growing middle class was now stronger than ever before, with many having studied abroad and most having at least graduated from university. Their belief was this, that a two-party system would be beneficial for Taiwan and end the excesses of one-party rule under the Kuomintang, or KMT. Despite government interference, the organizers of the democracy movement were able to reach an audience of people like these through a magazine, Formosa magazine. The government could try to disrupt the magazine's operations, but it found it couldn't silence the democratic ideas the magazine spread. As the government continued to block the democracy movement's progress, it also found itself up against a constellation of allied movements spreading in Taiwan society. There was a women's movement, a workers' movement, an indigenous Taiwanese movement, an LGBT rights movement, and a movement to protect Taiwan's environment. Even those who would have been expected to support the KMT government weren't necessarily happy. The KMT had fled to Taiwan after losing the Chinese Civil War in the 1940s. Now, after decades in virtual exile, these aging Civil War veterans started to call for the right to visit their old homes back across the Taiwan Strait. Under the status quo of single-party rule, all of these causes found their way forward blocked. 1986, in the year 1986, building pressure for change came to a head. People had long been talking about founding an opposition party, and that year, they finally did it. At a conference in Taipei's Grand Hotel, delegates announced the creation of the Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP. They did so at great risk. Originally, the new party's founders were going to be arrested. In an era of martial law, this shouldn't have been a difficult thing to do. Professor Chen says that the party's founders expected the worst, and they even wrote farewell letters to their families. But after a long time spent waiting around for government forces to come get them, it became clear that they weren't going to be arrested after all. Here, as before in our story, Professor Chen says it's possible that the United States applied the right kind of pressure on the KMT government and stopped the planned arrests. 
Either way, as the days turned into weeks and the weeks turned into months, it became clear that the new party was here to stay. By 1987, the combined weight of the democracy movement and other social movements reached a critical mass. In July that year, martial law was formally lifted. Two figures are often credited with making the end of the martial law era possible. The first is then-president Jiang Jingguo. He was the son of Chiang Kai-shek, the KMT leader whose government had imposed martial law in the first place. The lifting of martial law in 1987 came just months before Jiang Jingguo's death. The other important figure here is Li Denghui, the president who then succeeded Jiang. I asked Professor Chen how he assesses their roles, both in the lifting of martial law and in advancing Taiwan towards democracy. He says both figures were critical to our story. Professor Chen says that during the later years of his life, Jiang Jingguo began to take a more relaxed approach towards governing. He also changed the identity of the KMT. In part, this was because he knew firsthand how hated the status quo was. In 1970, while in New York, he himself had been the target of an assassination attempt by Taiwanese dissidents. We heard last week about government efforts to sideline Taiwan's local culture in favor of its own vision of mainland Chinese culture. This attitude towards Taiwan and all things local extended to Taiwan's people as well, who face discrimination even when working in the government. Professor Chen says that as local people pushed for localization, so too did Jiang Jingguo, though in a way that was his own. His way was to promote people from Taiwan within the KMT, those who were already in the party and followed its values. It was something both new and conventional at the same time. But Jiang Jingguo could make waves too. He also shocked some by remarking that he too was Taiwanese. If that was the case, Professor Chen says, wasn't the entire KMT? So Jiang had his own approach towards changing the party and reforming. But this approach moved far more slowly than actual social change on the ground. And Professor Chen says social pressures forced the lifting of martial law, the final domino to fall. As we've said, Jiang Jingguo died just months after the lifting of martial law. Despite in-party wrangling to keep him out of the position, Li Denghui, a native of Taiwan, took over as president after Jiang's death. His career as Taiwan's first president after the martial law era reminds us that even after martial law, Taiwan's path to democracy still had a long way to go. In a sense, it was he who helped bring Taiwan over the finish line. At the start of the 1990s, he got old guard lawmakers and long-sitting members of the National Assembly to retire. This move opened up their seats for popular election and cleared the way for a more truly representative government. Above some objections from his party, he also allowed Taiwan's first-ever direct presidential elections, which he won in 1996. 
Then, when the next election came around in 2000, he helped Taiwan clear its last major hurdle. That year, for the first time, an opposition party won the presidency. The party that won was the DPP from 1986. Lee went around convincing his fellow party members to accept the result and hand over power peacefully. Today, after several backs and forths between the KMT and DPP, this kind of handover is taken for granted. In Professor Chen's view, none of the presidents that have followed have equaled Lee, and these contributions are the reasons why. Thirty years on from the end of martial law, not everything is perfect. But during the 1970s and 1980s, Taiwan's people did something remarkable. They asserted their power and discovered that they couldn't be stopped. And now, for all the contentions and disagreements Taiwan's people have, they've secured the right to criticize the government, to organize politically, and most importantly, to choose Taiwan's future themselves at the ballot box. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another Journey Through Time. This is Radio Taiwan International. The Mazu pilgrimage is finally underway after being canceled due to the COVID-19 outbreak. The procession of the Goddess of the Sea is one of the top three religious festivals in the world. Usually about one million people take part in Mazu's birthday celebration and journey, visiting about 100 temples over 300 kilometers. It features free food, ceremonies, and fireworks. One thing you'll often see is people prostrating under her sedan chair to obtain her blessings. But that and many other aspects of the pilgrimage have changed this year due to the pandemic. Let's have a look. The Mazu pilgrimage is a nine-day, eight-night religious procession that takes place every year. An idol of the sea goddess Mazu is transported on a palanquin from Zhenlan Temple in central Taiwan to Fengtian Temple in the south and back again. This year, organizers delayed and then streamlined the pilgrimage in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. One of the silver linings to the downsized festival is that Mazu is getting where she needs to go much faster. The procession arrived at its first stop three hours ahead of schedule. This tunnel, which is usually packed to the gills, took just three minutes to traverse. During the pilgrimage, people prostrate in front of Mazu's palanquin, receiving her blessings as she passes overhead. Organizers had prohibited that this year, but then they eased the rules to allow people to crawl under it during breaks. A few devout worshippers decided that wasn't enough. They made a break for it, diving under the palanquin before they could be stopped. Despite the organizers' best efforts, prevention practices have slipped. Food is left uncovered and out in the open, while people crowd inside the Zhanghua County Government Building to rest. Fear of COVID-19 has seemingly been outmatched by local faith. <laughs> The Sound of the Amis Tribe on Radio Taiwan International. Listen, are you listening? <laughs> this is the sound of my country. This is the sound of Taiwan. 
到五吗？给你掏钱啊！别弄我的剑。Taiwan, a small island with a whole world of sounds. This is Radio Taiwan International. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kilohertz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kilohertz. And in Southeast Asia, from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kilohertz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kilohertz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to PO Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's PO Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me/radiotaiwanintl. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me/radiotaiwanintl for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.